Our message is from Psalm 1, so if you can turn there, I'll read Psalm 1, verses 1 through 6, the entire psalm. Let's hear God's word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the authority of it and the power of it at work in our world. We can rely upon you, Father, and we can rely upon your word. So we pray, please, apply it to our minds and have us to live in accordance with it and in obedience to it. We lift it up now. We lift it up in the uh, midst of the congregation. Uh, to glorify uh, Christ as the spoken word. We give you thanks in his name and for his sake. Amen. This message is adapted from a uh, commune meditation series that I did back in 2006. So if you were back here in 2006, or actually I guess at the Alumni Center at UNO, this may seem familiar, but it, is, it has been changed quite a bit actually. I will not walk through just verses 1 through 6. I'll actually begin with just a kind of an overview, uh, just point to a couple things that I want you to pay special attention to and that I'll uh, refer back to later. And then I'll actually jump ahead to verse 3, and we'll go from 3 to the end and then come back and pick up verses 1 and 2. So the title is Seduction of Evil, and we'll end with that. The first thing I want to point out to you, though, is four words. Four words that start this psalm and four words that end this psalm. Blessed is the man. That's how it starts. And the last four words are, the ungodly shall perish. I believe this psalm is intentionally structured this way. Blessed is the man, the ungodly shall perish. And so there are... Uh, ways that I believe were intended to contrast these four words. The psalm itself has 128 words, and yet I think these eight are key to understanding all the other 120. So I think it's important for us to keep that in mind. They're kind of like bookends for this whole psalm. Now, as I said, let's skip past verses 1 and 2, and we'll come back to them. And let's start by reading verse 3. We're talking about the man who is blessed in verse 1. Blessed is the man that delights in the law of the Lord. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So there's one word that I want to focus on and expand on here, and that is the word planted. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. There are three points I want to make about this. First is that 
To be planted means that you are owned. God intentionally has taken one of us, one of you, and planted you somewhere. You are here now. Secondly, it means that you are there now. There's a place for you. So God owns you, and God has placed you somewhere. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul is upbraiding the Corinthians through much of that letter, and he really implores them to understand, I think, at this point, what he's saying. He says, do you not know that you are not your own? You have been bought at a price. The pastor that I remember first uh, attending his church when I became Reformed, he would say, you have been bought at a terrible price. So do you not know? And so Paul is reminding us in that text that we are owned. We are someone's property. We are in someone's family. And then two, that God has placed us where we are. He's placed us in this country, in this time, in this city, in this family, placed you. And so it's for your good. It's for my good that I'm here. It's for your good that you're here. God has intentionally, with care, placed you where he wants you. 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, Paul is instructing Timothy, and he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. So see, God places us in this place, and he wants us to be content. He wants us to overcome our own sinful hearts, our own rebelliousness, in wanting to be somewhere else, anywhere else, other than where he's placed us. So, we're owned we're placed, and we have purpose. We are fruit trees. The text clearly says that we are to bear fruit. So we are fruit trees in God's orchard. We've been placed exactly where he wants us, and we are to bear fruit at his command. What type of fruit? I don't know. I don't know whether we are all the same type of fruit. I doubt it. We're very different. But we have a purpose. Last Sunday, the message that Gary brought was from Romans 12, and verse 1 reads, Present your bodies a living sacrifice. And he went on to speak about all of chapter 12, the many, many ways in which we are to serve God, that we are to pour out our lives on this earth for the benefit of his kingdom. So we have a purpose, and that is our purpose, to serve God faithfully while we're here on this earth. So verse 3, just in that one word about being planted by the rivers of water, tells us that we're owned, that we've been placed somewhere specifically by God, and that we have a purpose to bear fruit for him. But there is a contrast implied in this, that the wicked are not so. That's what verse 4 starts off with, the ungodly are not so. And what is being contrasted is exactly what we just said. The ungodly are experiencing the opposite of that. Do we believe it, is the question. Do they believe it, is the question. We are fruit trees, but what are they? 
Are they trees at all? I think of them as weeds. I believe the Gospels clearly portray unbelievers as weeds. Why do the weeds thrive in this world? They seem to thrive effortlessly. My wife is a gardener, and she fights against the weeds. The plants that she's put in the ground, she wants to protect, and yet the weeds are always invading. The weeds are always, apparently, attacking. They do really, really well, even though they would appear to have no purpose other than to make gardeners' lives miserable, and do they do any good. So the righteous versus the wicked, the fruit trees versus the weeds. Jesus told the parable where the farmer has planted his crops and they've started coming up, but then his workers come to him and say, there are tares growing in the midst of the grain. And so what did Jesus say as that landowner? He said, some enemy has done this. And his people wanted to go rip them up. He said, no, you can't rip them up. He said, you'll rip up the crop along with it. No, no, let them grow. We'll deal with it at the harvest. And then they get separated. Only then do they get separated. Leave them be. They'll be dealt with. In Matthew 15, in another portion of Scripture, he's talking to his disciples and he tells them, every plant not planted by my Father will be plucked up. Every plant not planted by my Father will be plucked up. God will one day exterminate all the weeds. Every weed in existence will disappear. And of course, you know I'm speaking of it as a metaphor. He will take care of the ungodly. He will deal with the wicked. Verse 4 starts, The ungodly are not so. And when I researched this long ago, it emphasized that in the Latin Vulgate, that is given double emphasis. The Latin Vulgate reads, not so the ungodly, not so. Double emphasis. In other words, these are the righteous. These are the ones that God owns, that God plants, that God uh, purposes, and that he nurtures. And the ungodly are not so, not so the ungodly. The ungodly, by contrast, are then compared to chaff. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. And so regardless of earthly achievement, I don't care how many buildings some wealthy person might have named after them in Omaha or around the world, if they do not know the Lord, their lives are meaningless in the end. Ultimately, their lives had no meaning. They are chaff blowing on the wind. Chaff is that which is essentially ignored in the whole harvesting process. Nowadays, with all these modern farming equipments, it's the stuff that's just getting ejected out the side of the beast that's harvesting the crops. All the crops are going into the bin, and all that yucky stuff is just getting thrown back into the field. It's ignored. It's unwanted. It's thrown out. And that is how the ungodly are described in Psalm 1. So verse 5, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Now, we haven't commented on verses 1 and 2 like I had mentioned, but yet here 
the writer refers back to words that were used in verse 1. Therefore the ungodly, that's in verse 1, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. And that's in the next phrase, nor stands in the path of sinners. And then he says, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And so here you can imagine that they're seated. This is a place where people belong. This is a place where we're fellowshipping, where we're comfortable. Not so the godly. The ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So just as the righteous man of verse 1 has rejected these influences of evil, not becoming a part of that, here we have the wicked not becoming a part of the righteous body. So you've got this mutual exclusion going on. Now on the earth, we know that injustice is a fairly common thing. It is difficult at times to see justice done. And so we tolerate it, and our governments tolerate it, in many areas where we need not tolerate injustice. We could do better. And yet, we sometimes go too far in seeking to enforce some form of justice. When we abandon God in our public sphere, humans then must attempt to perfect that which cannot be perfected. Yet, we are then, as a body politic, prone to the false hope, the false belief that we can do much better than those poor schmucks that were running the country last time. And so then we continue to have this hope roll forward until eventually all they need in order to be perfect is your worship. They need you to believe in them. They need you to just give them a blank check. I will do anything for you. I will give you anything. Just rule us in perfection and peace. And that is what we've been discussing on Tuesday nights on the road to serfdom. That is when people are in the harness of the dictator. And so it's our own desire to overcome the injustices in this world that lead us to abandon our freedoms and give them to people that say they can run a society that does not have injustice as a part of it. And so we believe the lie. We sang that song a bit ago about the idols. It's hard for us, I think, sometimes to relate to a song like that about idolatry. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have ears, but they don't hear. Well, we don't make idols in America, or do we? And yet, these idols are what we give our lives for in this world. The unbelievers of this world are all living lives of idolatry. They do not know God. They do not love God. They do not want to please God with their lives. Verse 6 reads, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. You see here the same phrase, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And I elaborated on that when I spoke of it a few years ago. And the way is a course of life. It describes a course of life, a, a, a world and life view, if you will. And so, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. So in other words, the Lord knows what's in our hearts. If we are truly righteous, then we are in the way. We are in God's way. 
And in the book of Acts, you see that the early church was sometimes referred to as the way. It was, in a sense, a competing term. They came to be called Christians at Antioch, it said, but really until that time, they were also known as the way. And yet Christianity, that term, has really displaced that. I guess it occurred fairly early in time. And yet that means our way of life, our way of thinking, God's way. His way is our way. It knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The righteous here are seen as lasting, as permanent, and the ungodly are temporal and passing. So now we've contrasted these two ways, and so let's go back to verses 1 and 2 and pick up, and you'll see why I've chosen to do it this way. Verse 1 is very interesting, and I want you to, to read it, follow through with this with me, and I believe you'll benefit from it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Except for that blessed is the man, those four words that I said mirror the last four words, we have three sentences that are parallel to one another. Each of those three sentences has three unique words. Who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. You can see there's this three, three, three. Three lines, three words in each. And there is a progression in each of these lines. And so I'm going to begin from the last word of the first line, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. So the first word here we're going to look at is ungodly. Ungodly, I would refer to as the antagonist in our little, tiny, one-line story. Nor stands in the path of sinners. Again, the antagonist is sinners. Nor sits in the seat of the scornful. The antagonist is the scornful. So we've identified that last word of each of those three lines. It is our antagonist in these three little stories that get worse and worse. The middle word, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. That is the bad influence, that's the evil conundrum that the antagonist is bringing into the story. Counsel, and then in the path of, and in the seat of. And then we come to the first word, and this is the action that the righteous person of our story is avoiding. The bad action that they're avoiding, that they're overcoming walks not, stands not, sits not. And that I see as the response, the proper response. But if you drop off the negation, it is the bad response. So you've got the antagonist, you've got the bad influence, and you've got the potentially bad outcome or response that our hero of the story, the righteous, is experiencing. Let's talk about the antagonists, these three words that we have that describe the antagonist. Ungodly. Now, that's potentially the softest term that can be used to describe someone who's not a believer, the ungodly. It's really just the opposite of godly, and so now our imaginations might run wild with us in that regard, but really ungodly is a fairly simple way of 
having the opposite. But really, ungodly could just mean not reflecting godly character. So this person could actually be pretty nice, a pretty nice guy. They're just not godly. The next one is sinners. Now, sinners implies a way of life, a pattern of life. Sinners sin. It's just who they are. It's what they do. Now, I'm not saying that the ungodly aren't sinners, but I'm saying that when sinners is used to describe this person, it's more evident that they're sinners, that their pattern of life betrays them. The next one is scornful. And so scornful, they have open contempt now for God, for the church, for Christians. That's the antagonist, the progression of it. Let's look at the progression of the bad influence. Counsel. That's advice. The ungodly is attempting to give advice to our hero. It is rebuffed. They do not accept that counsel. But really, it's just advice. They could mean well. They don't necessarily mean harm to our hero. It's just bad advice because it's from a human perspective. It's not from a God-honoring perspective. The next one is path, the path of the sinners. Again, well-worn pattern of life. When I've driven around Chalco down on the south side of Omaha, you see the game trails. There are these deer that roam around all over Chalco, and yet you drive along the road and you see these little trampled down paths that go off up the hill. Those deer have been there for years and they travel those paths. They travel paths. It's really interesting to me that wild game use roads like we do. They're not all that wild, are they? They're somewhat tame. But so they travel on these paths, well-worn paths. That's what we're talking about here. This is a well-worn path that the sinner is trotting. And then the last one is seat. And then you're talking, obviously, about getting comfortable. Sit down, take a load off, stay a while. That's what you have at work here. You have this progression. You have this progression from offering advice to being in the path, having it be a habit, and now it's like, stay, oh, stay, join us, join us. Now we have the bad response. We have the last one. We have the response that is negated for our hero. He's responding well, but we haven't presented in a negative way. And so the weakest one, the softest one, is walks not. Walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. And again, walks not, you're passing by. You happen to see something and you avert your eyes. You turn away. You do not stop. You are succeeding. Our hero is succeeding at avoiding this. Nor stands. See, now someone has not continued walking on. They've perhaps slowed down. They're looking at something. They're curious about something. They're gawking. That is to pursue further into that path, allow your curiosity to get the better of you. You're remaining potentially to participate. And then Nora sits in the seat of the scornful. And we already talked about what seating means. It means you're getting comfortable. You're going to get comfortable so that you can enjoy this. And you're choosing to identify with those that you're seated with. The proverb reads, bad company corrupts good morals. It's a very true proverb. 
So this person, this bad response, they're choosing to identify with these people. So we have the antagonist, the bad influence, the bad responses. Let me give you a paraphrase for each of these lines that I believe is appropriate. Who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, he's not following their advice. Nor stands in the path of the sinners, he's not emulating their example. Nor sits in the seat of the scornful, he is not joining their ranks. So you see our hero. He is impervious to their advice. He is not emulating their example. He is not joining and identifying himself with their ranks. Psalm 1 is a success story. It is overcoming temptation to do any of these bad things that I've mentioned. But this psalm can also describe people falling to these temptations. I've used this phrase before with you, a wise man learns from his mistakes. A wiser man still learns from the mistakes of others. And so I want to share with you my mistake so that I pray you will not repeat it, that it will be burned into your minds and you will realize that, that what I've just read is very, very important to understand. Two months ago, uh, many of you, not all of you, but many of you know that I stood up here after the service and shared what had happened with my son. And so uh, Josiah, our oldest son, turned 21. And then two days later, I'm at work and I get an email saying that he has gone to California for the weekend with his girlfriend. And it was news to me that my 21-year-old son had a girlfriend, let alone that he was planning on going to California with her. So I will make this brief. Uh, the result of this is that he's abandoned the faith. We haven't seen him here since then, nor I believe will we. He, is, uh, he has succumbed to each of these that I've expounded upon. And let me share you just briefly what I mean. Over the previous three to four years, he had begun to follow the advice of his unbelieving co-workers against my own advice. I would see it, I would see evidence of it, but I wouldn't really call him on it. I wouldn't take him to task for it. I would think, well, if he wants to do this, then who am I to stop them? I'll let him learn from his mistakes. He began to emulate them, this second one, in the path of sinners. He began to emulate them in many ways that I was uncomfortable with. He started getting his hair cut, and then like his Hispanic uh, cooks, he would carve shapes and, and weird symbols into his head. And I just thought, I'm uncomfortable with this, but again, I'll let it go. And then, of course, he has now joined their ranks and had been in their ranks for months and months, and I hadn't known it. He had been in their ranks for at least eight months. By having this girlfriend, knowing that it was against our faith, knowing that it would one day be discovered, but he didn't care. He wanted what he wanted, and he was unwilling to do what it is that God would have him do. So, when I uh, was asked by Gary to preach today, I thought, well, you really have to preach on what is most important that you can share. So what I wanted to share was this message, this warning, because several times over the last three years, this psalm has been in my mind. I've often thought of it in terms, in the context of Josiah and what he'd been doing. 
especially, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. I perceived that he was thinking and often acting with scorn towards our faith, yet I didn't take it seriously. I just didn't take it nearly as seriously as I should have. And so I wanted to share with you that this was a huge failure on my part. I ignored the signs. I thought he would grow out of them. I figured that just loving on him would be enough. And it wasn't. So I don't want to dwell on what has happened, but I wanted to share that with you because that's really what's behind this whole text. Verse 2 provides us great wisdom in what I should have done differently as I saw this unfold over the last few years. And I wanted to expound upon this wisdom such that you all don't make the same mistake I did. So verse 2 reads, But, our hero, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now, uh, many of you know this too, but before again I go on, I want to share something. And it has to do with me becoming a Christian. Uh, it was March 13, 1981. A buddy and I were stationed out of 29 Palms, and we chose to drive back to Camp Pendleton. Frankly, I was fed up with being out in 29 Palms in the midst of uh, these guys that I was living with. And I just said, I'm going back to Pendleton. And so this other fellow, Tom, he said, I'll go with you. And so that afternoon, we got, off, uh, got out of school, and we each took, took two hits of acid. I was not a believer at this point. And so we each took two hits of acid and drove off on this road that goes out to this uh, Mojave Desert. And we started flying. We were high as kites on the I-10. And then I've since learned that I must have at some point got on the 710 or whatever it is. The 710 goes down to Palos Verdes. But uh, everything for me, everything for me changed that night because I had a vision. And in that vision, I saw wickedness, evil, and I knew that I had to oppose it. It was in our society. It was especially strong in the cities. I didn't know how to term it. I didn't know what to talk about it. I didn't know anything. I was just clueless. But I was on fire because I'd had this vision and I needed to fight against it. The next day, I went to a buddy that I'd been with in Millington, Tennessee, and he and I had partied together sometimes, and I started talking to him about this vision. And he said, you talk like a guy in my barracks. So we drove back to his barracks. And he went and got this guy. And this guy gave me this. A Bible map. God's plan of the ages. And I still have it. This is the one. But the thing is, is that when he showed this to me, when he unfolded it, it's a dispensational map of the ages, and I was a dispensationalist for maybe a year and a half, but I didn't hear a word he said, honestly. All I knew in the instant he started talking and showed me this, what I knew without a doubt in my mind was that God existed. I'd always believed God existed. I'd always inferred it. Life makes no sense if there is no God. But yet I didn't know God. And now he handed me this, and in an instant I realized God existed. Because what I didn't share with you is over the previous several weeks, this guy that I took acid with and rode back to L.A. with, he and I had been 
reading the book of Revelation over and over and over and over again. We were obsessed with end times. I'm, I was obsessed, and I'm reading all this. I didn't know God, but Revelation is scary. And I thought all this was going to happen. It all just kind of fit in somehow. So then I saw this, and it just struck me, God is for real. Then began about eight weeks of the most miserable period of my life. Because while I knew God existed, I knew I didn't know Him. May 7th, 1981. Eight weeks later, 55 days later, it was a Thursday. By this time, we're, we're back. We've finished up out in 29 Palms. We're back in Pendleton. I have a room all to my own. I'm supposed to be in a three-man room, but no one lived with me. And this young fellow moved in, this young black man moved in. And uh, after a few days, I started seeing this piece of paper. At first, I saw it on the back of the toilet tank. And it was a trifold piece of paper like this, and it said, Eternal Life Insurance Policy. And it was sitting there in the back of the tank. I didn't open it. The next day, it was by our sinks. Again, I, I didn't open it. The next day, it was on my bed. <laughs> I thought, okay, this fellow wants me to read this. And so I sat down and I read this. And so then he started asking me about this. And I shared with him all that I've shared with you. I, I told him how bizarre the last eight weeks of my life had been. And I was really miserable at this point. I was not a nice person to be around. I was very bitter. I was very angry because I didn't know what to do. And I was still partying. As a matter of fact, that afternoon, that evening, I was waiting for some hashish to be delivered to me. And so he starts talking to me, and he starts opening the Bible and sharing things with me. And we end up talking for a couple of hours. And I told him I did not want to serve Satan. And he said, well, you do serve somebody. You must serve Satan or God. And I couldn't really say comfortably I wanted to serve God. And so I said, well, I don't want to serve Satan. So he said, that's not enough. And then, out of the blue... I had been standing there holding a Bible. Out of the blue, I told him this. I said, this is a buddy of mine's Bible. It was a gift to him from his father. He's underlined things in red that he wants his son to pay special attention to. And I popped it open, and what I read, <laughs> and what I just told him was God had not asked me to serve him. What I then read... <laughs> was what Joshua said to the people when they were having second thoughts just prior to his death. And they were beginning to serve and worship the local gods. He said, choose ye this day whom you will serve, from Joshua 24. I, out of the blue, I told this guy, God hasn't asked me to serve him yet, you know, because I was just so uncomfortable with this. And then in my own head, I start reading these words. And to his credit, he just sat there and smiled at me. <laughs> and he said, it sounds like God is asking you now. <laughs> I was dumbfounded, obviously. And in a squeaky mouse voice, I said, I choose to serve God. But then everything changed. I mean, really, it was miraculous. We continued fellowshipping and reading, and he'd take me to fun things, and then I get a knock at the door. And so I walk over to my dorm room door, or my barracks door, and I open it up, and there's this tiny little Hispanic guy. Hey, Swap, I got it, I got it. He's, he's brought me his, this hash. 
And I just said, I don't need it anymore. And I shut the door on him. <laughs> Word got around that Swab had gone off the deep end. I mean, all my drug buddies just disappeared overnight. I, I didn't have any drugs after that day. And nor did I know any that were going around. I mean, I just dropped totally off the grid of the drug-related world. Um, but yet, the reason I share this is that um, God became real to me two weeks earlier, eight weeks earlier, and yet now God became known to me. Suddenly, he just, he just filled. I was so in love. I was so in love with God at that point, I couldn't get out of the Gospels. I still didn't have a real Bible. I gave this Bible back to my buddy, you know, the, the Bible that I'd borrowed, and I still had just a couple of New Testaments. But I would highlight everything. <laughs> I'd be in the Gospels and I'd just, oh, highlight, highlight. I had it in my back pocket all the time. I was reading it constantly. And so then, after a couple months of that, I was turned on to more of the Bible. I started going to church, and people introduced me to Paul and the epistles, and I fell in love with Paul and the epistles. It just grew. I had such a hunger, such a hunger and a love for God. But what devastated me was giving in to sin, because at first it seemed like God had so overwhelmed me that I would never sin again. I fully intended to never sin again. I thought it was possible. Because then I'd read in John about how people that believe in God, people that have faith, they don't sin. And if they, and if they sin, they're a liar. I'm like, oh, I don't want to be a liar, but I'm sinning. What am I doing? I was so confused. And I, honestly, I knew nobody else that was a Christian. I mean, the fellow that had given me this map, I never saw him again. And so I didn't know anybody. And so I just drove out, I'm praying, and I'm like, God, point me to a church. And I picked a church, that's how I picked a church. And uh, it's often how I read the Bible. Oh, God, what do you have for me today? Uh, but so it's changed since those days. But Jesus said this, Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it. Narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. So see... I did not find this road. I did not find this gate. It totally came out of left field. God totally came to me and changed my life around. And so when Jesus is speaking this way, why does the gate brought us away to destruction? There are many who go in by it. Narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. See, my experience is not replicable, is it? I am not going to recommend that you take acid and drive into L.A. I was honestly, I mean, I, hey, Tom, I'm going to drive into this truck. No, no, don't do that. Okay. I would have done it right under the truck. I, I could have easily just been dead seconds later. But thankfully, he weighed about 40 pounds more than me, so the acid was probably not affecting him as much as me. But I was ready to do it. I just said, hey, Tom, look, there's a semi. I'm going to drive under that semi. I, I, I still don't know how we possibly survived that drive. But so... This experience that I had is non-normative. I must stress that. Non-normative. Do not follow in my steps. So what is the path to God? How do we navigate the difficult, narrow trail that leads to God? And it's right here in this answer. 
But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. How can we resist the corrosive effects of sin? How can we travel this difficult trail and get through that narrow gate? How do we seek after that euphoric relationship that I had with God in those first few weeks after I was a believer? We do it by meditating on his word. And yet that seems so lame. Honestly, it seems so lame, so mundane by comparison to what I experienced. But it's true. God promises that the more we read his word, the more we choose to meditate on this, the more he will come to us and meet us where we are. I might never experience that sweetness this side of heaven. I have experienced wonderful moments of oneness with God, but nothing like those first few weeks. It was incredible. It was a honeymoon. And I now realize that that's how honeymoons are supposed to be. Yes, they fade. That, that, that vibrancy does fade somewhat. But so, this righteous man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. But remember, these first four words, blessed is the man. The last four words, the ungodly shall perish. I want you to note something here that I think is very important. Blessed is the man, and then we go on to talk about these negative things, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. There are a bunch of people over here in what I just shared in verse 1. All of that walking and sinning and scorning. Jesus had said, wide, wide is the path that leads to destruction. Many there be on it. And yet that path leading to life speaks of quiet time with God in his word, getting to know him. If we seek God in the midst of our Christian friends, that's not where God is. You must go to God alone. You must find him alone. You can enjoy life in this congregation. But that's fellowship with our fellow man. It's not fellowship with God. It's not a saving relationship with a God who loves you. Where are the believers in this text? He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. See, he's planted this righteous man in a body in the midst of fellow believers that can help strengthen him, nourish him, do all these wonderful things. But the relationship, the primary relationship, the saving relationship is with God. And he acquired that through delighting in God's word, in delighting in God's presence in the quiet, not in the midst of the chaos. I believe our young people choose to leave the faith because they don't know God. They don't have a relationship with God. And what they're really doing is choosing between the companions that they're going to spend their lives with. Do I want to spend the rest of my life with believers, or do I want to spend the rest of my life with people who, though they lack belief, appear to be more fun, appear to be more uh, appealing 
to me personally. That's what my son has done. He's chosen to abandon the faith because he believes what he's getting with where he's gone is better. That evaluation did not take God into account, either his relationship with God or the repercussions of his rejection of God. But yet that's the real thing. Blessed is the man, the ungodly shall perish. You see, there's an individual in that first line. Blessed is the man. It's an individual. And yet down here, the ungodly shall perish. That's the many. We've got the one and the many. The one who has chosen to be with God, to walk that critical path, enter into that narrow gate, and we've got the many that are just enjoying life and giving no thought to tomorrow. This message is entitled, The Seduction of Evil, because I believe each of these presents a challenge to all of us to stay with the faithful. And God has told us how to do that. And it is through reading his word, meditating on his word day and night. Don't abandon his word. His word is access to God himself. He's made it that way. He came to me without me knowing. I was just an idiot on drugs, and yet he saved me. But yet, that, like I said, is non-normative. How we pursue God is through his word, through his son. Because Jesus is the word. This is Christ in written form. So, I encourage you to not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, to not stand in the path of sinners, to not seat, sit in the seat of the scornful, but to delight yourself in the Word of God. Memorize it. Meditate on it. And make sure your children are doing the same. Don't take a hands-off approach to that. It's way too important. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your presence. We thank you, Lord, that your word promises to draw us close into your presence, and yet this is on your timetable, and we pray, Lord, that we would be disciplined and diligent in reading and studying and praying and doing all we can to enter into your presence. And we pray, Lord, that you would reward us from time to time with a picture of that beautiful fellowship that we will have with you completely in heaven. So be with us now, Lord. I pray for those that are weak in the faith. I, praise, I pray for those that do not have a hunger for your word. I pray, Lord, that they would read and read and read and memorize and meditate such that the hunger will come and it will be something that they'll have to do every day in order to know that they are following hard on that narrow path. Thank you, Father. Be with us, we pray in Christ's name, and for his sake we give you praise. Amen.